This episode of the Socks and Sandals podcast is brought to you by Mr. OK's Essentials. Mr. OK's is 100% black owned. Uh, you all have heard, if you haven't heard, the owner, the creator of Mr. OK's Essentials was on the Socks and Sandals podcast episode 101. So check it out. But uh, Mr. OK's provides 100% natural candles, body butter, and soap. Okay? 100% natural ingredients, 100% black owned, and 100% vibes and love poured into every product. All right, now go to the website, www.mrokesessentials.com. In the checkout, enter promo code SOCKS to receive 10% off your next order, okay? Once again, go to the website, get your candles, get your butter, get your soap, get right, and enter promo code SOCKS, S-O-X, and receive 10% off your next order. you're an artist most i mean i don't want to say most but a lot a lot of folks a lot of black folks don't really know about Kara walker like i'm showing her art to people i'm bringing it up i'm talking to her, like no nah, i never heard of her <laughs> and so it makes me think like yo like maybe she just does this for white people and i just have to i have to be cool with that you know i just can't i can't feel any type of way about that you know but i don't know i'm, I'm rambling but like that's those are the things that that come up like as i'm processing her art and and her audience and who places great value in this because if you if you come from the trauma like you don't necessarily want to thrust yourself into the trauma but if you've never been if you never dealt with this type of trauma this is like oh wow you know you just look at it like oh this this existed oh that's terrible wow maybe i should learn about this so i don't know it's just it's, i think it just hits different for different people What up, what up? I want to welcome you all back to the Socks and Sandals podcast, where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. It's your guy, Emmanuel. I'm back. I'm not in the kitchen. I'm in my bedroom. I normally would be either at the studio or downstairs in the kitchen, but my son is sick. He's downstairs holding it down, uh, getting better, drinking tea and coughing a lot. So I'm up here, and uh, I have a very special guest with me. My, my guest is the head of research at the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles, California. She is an adjunct professor at USC and is a world-renowned author, Miss Rebecca Peabody. Say what's up to the people, Rebecca. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> for sure. Thank you for coming on um, and making the time. I know, you know, we've both been dealing with illness and kids that have been sick and all that type of stuff and our own personal sickness, having to get over that. So uh-huh. thank you for pushing through and, and making this happen. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be with you. For sure. For sure. And, and we can't go too much further without saluting our friend of the show, our mutual friend and colleague. Um, she was on the Egyptology episode, episode 103. Uh, Mrs. Kara Cooney. Thank you, Kara. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Kara. For sure. Friend. For sure. And a great podcast guest. Man, she was she was amazing. Now, tell me about <laughs> you all's relationship. How do you guys know each other and for how long? How we've known each other since... Um, about 2007, I think. She worked at the Getty briefly when I started. So mm-hmm. we were co-workers first. Okay. Uh, met and connected, and then she went on to UCLA pretty quickly thereafter. But we stayed in touch, and we've uh, uh, we've been friends ever since. We've got a lot in common with our, our intellectual work and our family lives. So um, she's, just, she's just a really dear friend. 
for sure, for sure. And for those listening, you know, we are going to talk about um, the the book that you wrote, Rebecca, Consuming Stories, which is about Kara Walker, uh, mm-hmm. an amazing artist. Um, but before we get into that, just going to um, get to know you a little bit better. So just before we go too far, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what's the typical day in the life of Rebecca Peabody. Sure. So um, I am from a small town in Missouri originally. Uh, but I've been making my way around the world ever since then. So mm-hmm. I've been out in Los Angeles since uh, late 2006. I consider this my home now. Mm-hmm. Made my way here by way of uh, college in Iowa and grad st- brief stint uh, in California as a graduate student. And then I ultimately went to grad school on the East Coast. Spent some time in Australia, some time in France, some time in Canada. And then once I finished up with uh, all of my schooling, I came back to California uh, as quickly as I could, and I've been here ever since. Or, or, and so your schooling, what is your um, your specialty? What was your major? I have a joint PhD in the history of art and African American studies from Yale University. Wow, that's awesome! And I finished that up in two thousand six. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's dope. And so, what was your what was your um, what was the impetus for going through that? Like going to get a getting a PhD in African American studies. Well, the impetus was Yale is unique, or it was at the time, in having a joint PhD option, so mm. you can study two different fields at the same time. Yeah. And I uh, wanted a really uh, thorough grounding in the study of visual images, which mm. is art history. I wanted to look more broadly, so you know, I look at visual culture more generally, television, film, some art, uh, literature. I, I look at a broader range of creative production, but I knew that art history was the the discipline in which I would receive the training I wanted and how to look at images and think about them critically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also all along had been working on issues around um, social justice and uh, working towards um, a better world where we can fight against issues around racism and that sort of thing. So focusing on the two different fields at the same time allowed me to look at the visual, but also look at issues around the way our society is shaped and formed and the ways that people are treated differently and really bring them together and try to craft uh, a path forward for myself where I could work at that intersection and do the work that I want to do uh, through looking at images in a specific way. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's like fascinating. So, um, so how did that lead you to Getty, the Getty Research Institute? So after I finished my PhD, I uh, wanted to find a job. <laughs> right. And there I was interested in finding a place to work that was similar to a university environment where I could uh, be a scholar and think and write and support other people who are thinking and writing, mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily in a university exclusively. And the Getty Research Institute is uh, this amazing place that's like an art historical think tank. It's got uh, a bunch of special collections that are the the building blocks for scholarly research. So mm-hmm. the, the papers and the archives and the, the sketchbooks that artists produce and not just artists, but critics and curators and um, people affiliated with the art world. So we have this really rich repository of special collections and we have a group of scholars that come through to use them uh, to write their books and articles and produce new knowledge. Uh, and I had an opportunity to come and work here and uh, my position, it was a little different when I started, but it eventually became uh, a position where I was in charge of overseeing our institutional research agenda. So the 12 to 15 research projects we have going on at any given time in the building, I, I keep an eye on those and help make sure they're supported and uh, making progress 
And I also work with all of our public programming, our conferences and symposia. And I do my own research along the way, like the, the work on Kara Walker and other stuff that I'm working on. I teach at uh, the University of Southern California from mm-hmm. time to time. And more recently, the Getty launched a new initiative called the African-American Art History Initiative, which is uh, the Getty's uh, hopefully contribution to making this uh, a real destination for research into African-American art and artists. Mm-hmm. So that's an exciting new direction for us that coincides with my with my research and background. That sounds dope. So are, is, is it a process of you guys already know who you're targeting for that art that you're you know compiling or um is it like people can apply to have their art on on display for that project how would that work it's maybe a little bit of both yeah we don't actually collect art here but we mm-hmm. collect archives archives so, okay um so you know if you think about an artist you know all the material that they might amass through the course of their career if their family is you know thinking about what to do with their legacy and what they've left behind the one way of explaining is that the actual art, you know, the paintings or the sculptures or whatever would go to a museum, mm-hmm. but all the other stuff, all the preparatory material would come to us. So that would oh. be like the notes that the artist took or their sketchbooks or yeah. maybe the correspondence they had with other artists or maybe details about, you know, where they showed their exhibitions, gallery records. So all of the kind of the rich information around an artistic career, whether it's on the side of inspiration or how the career was carried out, that comes to us and that forms the archives and the special collections. And that's where scholars will go. In addition to looking closely at the actual works of art, they'll come to the archives to try to piece together a story of what happened. You know, how, how was this artist inspired? How did they shape their career? Mm. So we, we get archives in a number of different ways. Sometimes people approach us with their archives and ask if we'll take them. Sometimes we seek out archives. Mm-hmm. With this new initiative, I think we'll be kind of deliberately seeking out archives uh, from African-American artists. So we build up a repository of materials that scholars will want to come and look at to write new histories of African-American art. Mm. Yes, it's amazing. Like as I'm reading the book um, or as I have been reading the book and just like seeing how so many people react to certain, you know, pieces of art and Mm -hmm. just a variety of thought. but yeah, but before we get to that, so we are here today to discuss your book, an amazing book that you wrote. Is this your first book that you wrote? Thank you. It is um, it's my first single authored scholarly book. I, I wrote a trade book before this and I've okay. done a few other books in partnership, but it's my first single author scholarly book. Yeah. So amazing. It's called Consuming Stories, Kara Walker and the Imagining of American Race. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar with Kara Walker, tell us a bit about who she is, you know, and, you know, her work and her contribution to society. Sure. So Kara Walker is at this stage in her career, one of the the best known American artists working today. She's kind of at a place that we would consider mid career and that Mm -hmm. she's, she's been out and producing work for a couple of decades now, but she's. Like she's hit her stride. She's going strong and she's got a lot of years ahead of her as well. Yeah. She is best known for some of the early works she did, which were uh, black and white silhouette cutouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the medium that she worked in for the first several years of her career. And then she, she branched out and she's done a lot of other things after that. But uh, that was really what caught people's attention when she first started showing in uh, the mid 1990s. Mm hmm. 
And she has, from the beginning, used those black and white silhouettes to create really provocative images uh, that engage with ideas about race and racialized representation. Yeah. So she she tends to uh, create work that's um, uh, disturbing. And <laughs> For sure. For sure. <laughs> For sure. And it's been it's been controversial from the beginning. We we can talk about that. Um, what it, what the controversy was like in the beginning, what the controversy is like now, but it has never been unproblematic. Yeah. Um, but in spite of that, she, um, her star has risen and she's an internationally famous artist now. Yeah. I mean, talk, I mean, all the adjectives that you use, you know, provocative, disturbing, um, there's, I've never come across anything like her art. Um, and so I don't even have the vocabulary. Like there's, there's a there's a feeling that it gives me and I can't even describe it. It's so hard to describe it. Um, I think the more we talk, maybe the words will come. But there's like yeah. there's a word that has to come with her art. Like We have to create a word for that, like because it's, yeah. it's different. You know, it's not something yeah. that you're going to encounter on a daily basis or a weekly, yearly. No, this is this is one of a kind, at least for yeah. me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not that <laughs> well versed in art, but I'm like, yo, this is wild. You know, but, yeah. Yeah, I think you're not alone. In okay. That. <laughs> now, what what in particular compelled you to write a book about Kara, you know, and her art? Well, it was it was a long time in the making. I saw her work for the first time probably in 1999 or 2000, mm-hmm. a very long time ago. Okay. And the first piece I saw, I was just profoundly disturbed by it. I <laughs> felt like I had some tools going into looking at her work because I had at that point been taking classes on uh, the representation of race and Mm -hmm. reading black feminist theory and, you know, really thinking deeply about issues around the visual and how we represent ourselves and how we represent others and thinking more critically about historical tendencies around representation. So I I, I didn't feel ill-equipped to look at her art. And yet when I saw it, I was just completely destabilized by it. Mm. I looked at it and I, I felt helpless. I yeah. felt like um, I didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. And I felt really kind of disempowered by that. And it made me reflect on my own mental processes. Like, what, what did I think it meant to be well-equipped to look at really difficult, provocative art that engages directly with racism? Uh, so it, it created this sort of moment of self-reflection for me that made me really uncomfortable, but I also thought it was probably really productive because I was willing to sit with that discomfort and think about it. I might know more about myself and I might be able to contribute more in my way. Mm. So, um, it was not a pleasant experience. Yeah. (laughs) And the time I've spent with her work since then, it's been, it's been really grueling because she deals with violence and, sexuality and discomfort in ways that constantly make me uncomfortable. But I feel like, and I have felt this whole time, like engaging with that um, has led to something productive. And my, one of the contributions that I hope I've made through the book and the other things I've written about Walker is that I do my very best to try to articulate things that are difficult to talk about. Yeah. So that other people can talk about them as well, because it, it, such a characteristic of her work is the sense of confusion and not knowing what to say or what words to say. For sure. Um, that's one of the contributions that I, I hope I can make in my way. No, you, you did a really good job, because I mean, for me, I'm just 
there, there's so many there's so many emotions that come up and thoughts and it's just perplexing like a, a constant theme in her work is you know i think you wrote i think you i don't know if this is you or you um quoted someone else but says uh, visual and poetic demonstrations of the erotic potential at the intersection of race power and desire like that's that's heavy <laughs> you know that is heavy you know but um it's like while i'm read like while i was reading the intro and while i'm looking at the first figure in the book um it was on page 6 it was it was like the girl who had who basically had her breast in her mouth and then it was like the little man child benjamin button looking man yeah. kind of <laughs> uh, yep. that was basically um sucking a, a foulest looking banana peel I, it was so weird I, and y'all i know it's kind of hard to describe this art verbally and it sounds wild but like when you when you look at it you're gonna be like okay yeah mm-hmm. so it's just like i get thrust into a type of like cognitive warfare like i because i can't you can't readily make sense of what you're seeing mm-hmm. And then you can't unsee what you just see. So I'm, I'm disturbed and I'm frustrated. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, what and, is and the going words on? You have to use to describe it are just, yeah. The, to talk about a banana fowl that a child is suckling. It's yeah. It puts you in a, a really weird linguistic place where you have to use strange words and strange sentences. Right. <laughs> but it still doesn't do it justice. Yeah. So when you're, when you're like, when you were writing and, and describing and taking all the other views and putting them together, I mean, me reading it, I'm struggling and I'm battling and because I want to make sense of it, mm-hmm. but I can't. Do you, do you make sense of it or do you like, how do you like, I'm just, I'm angry at it. I don't know. That's, that's what it, mm-hmm. that's what it, that's what it leaves in me. It just leaves anger in me and, mm-hmm. and confusion. Like what, what emotions do you still wrestle with or, you know, how, what, what does it give to you? The yeah. Well, I offer some points of entry mm-hmm. into understanding the work. I don't attempt to explain it in any sort of definitive way. Yeah. I think, um, no one person could do that, but it also, I think it's not what she's after. I don't think she wants anybody to, like, I don't think she wants it to be easily stabilized and explained. So, mm-hmm. um, but what I attempt to do is provide viewers with some ways to make that experience that you've just described something useful, mm. hopefully for them personally and for us as a society. One thing that might be helpful to listeners, so you've you've done something that I wanted to ask you to do, which is take your best shot at describing this image. Maybe what I can do is describe it as well okay, and kind of walk you through my thought process when I was first looking at it for sure. And it's, it's a good piece to focus on because this was the very first piece of walkers that I ever saw. Yeah. It's called consume. And she made it in 1998. Mm -hmm. It is a black silhouette cutout. That's uh, normally adhered against a white gallery wall. And even though most people who see it will see it in representation. So it's just a couple of inches tall in my book. It's actually life size or larger than life size. And what I mean by that is, I think the full piece is almost uh, 70 inches tall. Wow. So, and the, the height is determined by the, the girl figure. Mm-hmm. So she would be, you know, like almost six feet tall on the wall. Right. So life-sized, but larger than life-sized because she's not meant to be an adult. She's like a 
adolescent and she's right. a younger girl. So, but she's being given the proportions of an adult mm-hmm. woman. So it's a larger than life size piece. You kind of have to imagine that this is, you know, really in your face. It's, you know, it's, it's a really large piece. Yeah. So as people approach this in the gallery, probably what they're going to see first is like just the shapes, black and white, some mm-hmm. figures. Walker is a beautiful drafts person. She draws really lyrically. So the lines are really beautiful. As somebody's approaching this piece, they might notice, oh, the, that there's some, whatever's going on in here, the lines are really lovely. The, you know, the arms and legs are designed really well. What's, let me see what's this you know, beautiful piece. And then as they come closer, then it starts to resolve into specific images and specific details. And then they realize what they're looking at. And then there's this, this level of shock mm-hmm. because the content is really unexpected and really disturbing. So the actual content is, it's a fairly simple piece with two figures, uh, a little boy, the Benjamin Button character, as you called him, (laughs) who is facing uh, a much larger girl. And the boy is so much smaller that he comes up to maybe mid-thigh on the girl. He's quite a bit smaller. Walker uses certain predictable and recognizable stereotypic ways of making viewers recognize her characters as either black or white. Mm-hmm. So the little boy is meant to be seen as white and the girl is meant to be seen as black. Mm-hmm. She, the girl is almost completely nude except for high heels and a bracelet and this strange banana skirt that she's wearing Yeah, um, with projections that are kind of all in her sort of genital area. Mm-hmm. And she has taken one of her breasts into her own mouth and she's suckling it. The boy who's facing her has taken one of the bananas, bananas into his mouth and he's suckling it. And his little hand is sort of splayed out to the side as though he's really into this activity. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, there's also a sort of historical allusion to it. There's nothing in it in particular that tells you what year it's meant to take place. But the little boy's clothes look a little older. They, both for his age, they look like something an older person should be wearing, but they also look historically older. And the the banana skirt is sort of a historical reference to the early part of the 20th century. But anybody who knows Walker's work knows that most of her stuff is situated in a sort of like pre-Civil War antebellum plantation era. Mm-hmm. So knowing that little bit about it and seeing this configuration and seeing that it's a white boy and a black girl, the first thing I think is, so is Walker trying to make a point about how black women were systematically raped by white men? on plantations is that is that what i'm supposed to make of this sexuality but if that was the case then why is she so much bigger than him why is she leaning towards him so then i think well this she has her breast in her mouth is it supposed to make me think about a story about how enslaved women were often forced to care for the children of other people it's a little white boy it's an older black girl Mm -hmm. breasts are involved is that what i'm supposed to think about but you know he's there's this banana thing going on where he's, you know, got the banana phallus in his mouth and she's suckling her own breast, not his. So then the banana skirt makes me think about Josephine Baker, who was a performer who uh, famously wore a skirt made out of bananas when she was entertaining people. She was an African-American who went to Paris and was an entertainer and famously wore a banana skirt and was uh, celebrated for her exoticism amongst other things. So then I thought, is this about exoticism about, um, making sexuality exotic and the continuing appeal of that. But then I don't see very much that corroborates that or 
you know, I don't see any evidence that the that the girl is engaged in that or resisting it. So as I'm cycling through all of these different possible interpretations, I realize simultaneously that I have this repertoire of stories. Like I have this this list of things that if I see explicitly racialized situations that are about sexuality and there are narratives that I'm expecting to come out of that that I'm looking for and I'm not finding them. Mm-hmm. So it makes me aware of the, the narratives that I have, but it also makes me aware that this particular image defies all of them and I don't know what's going on. So it creates this sort of mental space where I feel like I could be on board with what an artist wants to tell me. I feel like I can engage with provocative art, but I need to know the point they're trying to make. Right. And I need to know their motive. Right. What are they after? <laughs> what are they trying to do? I and think that was is, my that was my main like frustration. Yeah. Is because I I couldn't tell like what is she trying to accomplish because mm-hmm. just at first glance it's it seems like, you know, provocative just for the sake of being pr- provocative. Um, and it's like, what's the, is there anything constructive about this? Is there anything that's supposed to be constructive about this? And then, um, I'm watching her, um, just some of her interviews on YouTube and she's very vague, very ambiguous, or she'll answer like a similar question two different ways. And so it's just like, then I'm, then I'm at a point where like, man, is she just, She's just playing a game. And so I just I'll, I get frustrated from that point because it's so like I don't have a problem with provocative art as long as it's explained. But then when it's not explained mm-hmm. and then it's just open ended. So you draw your own conclusion. I just I don't know. I just I don't like it. <laughs> I don't know why I don't like it so much, but I just I really don't like it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it just it it really it really fucks with my mind. It was like, man, what like how do I. I can't like. I don't know. Like, can I share this with people? Do I want to share this with people? What value? You know, I don't know. Well, I think you articulated a lot of what makes her work disturbing, but also one of the reasons that I think it can be useful. And the reason that this piece kind of pulled me in Mm -hmm. because I, I found myself thinking similar things, but then asking myself, why do I need the experience of looking at this art to be constructive? That was the word that you just used. What is constructive about this? Yeah. Why do I need it? To, why do I expect it to be constructive? And what is it about the fact that it is particularly about racialized characters in in a moment, uh, a moment which we have been in for a very long time, where that's an incredibly important high stakes situation? Mm-hmm. Racism affects people's way lives in devastating ways every single day. It's the stakes are incredibly high. So to engage in that subject very specifically and deliberately and to be provocative, but to not make it clear what the point is Mm. creates the state of really uncomfortable ambiguity in viewers. But I think there's, there's a potential uh, productive outcome to that in that it can prompt viewers to reflect on these questions. Why do I need an explanation in order to be at ease with this? Mm -hmm. Why could I, you know, if I, I can imagine several explanations that could put me at ease at this, if, if she would just say, oh, it's a critique of this, or I'm, you know, analyzing that, or I'm bringing this to everybody's attention, like I could have a much more kind of satisfying and comfortable experience looking at this. Yeah. But I can't. She yeah. She holds that. 
It's tough. And so for those that still haven't or yeah, you guys are listening and you may not be researching as you're as you're listening, but um she so Kara's her her genre of art is called neo slave narrative. Is that correct? Um, I wouldn't say that her genre is. I would say no? that is I th- I think that's one productive way of looking at it. I, mm. I just wouldn't narrow it down and say that it is exclusively that. Well, um, well, I would say, would you say the the consuming like that, the end of Uncle Tom's grand allegorical tableau, like those pieces, would that be neo slave considered, or or what what genre would those be in if there is one? I I think they do engage with it. I would just mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hesitant to nail her down into any one particular genre, but yes, the, yeah. the neo slave narrative is usually thought of as a literary category but it's mm. definitely something that should be expanded to include visual art okay um, many other kinds of genres but yeah. it is a, a mode of creativity in which people write stories about uh, an imagined past for sure with enslaved people right yeah. yeah so yeah so we don't miscategorize it um so we wouldn't we would for art we wouldn't say neo-slave narrative but which what you said previously it was like her the setting of her art is typically uh what was it um antebellum south mm-hmm. pre civil war mm-hmm. right like that's that's the time frame so yeah. so specifically um let's jump to uh the end of uncle tom's grand allegorical tableau of eva in heaven long mm-hmm. title yeah. uh, and i I, actually, I like hearing you describe it. So, <laughs> in in two minutes, can you describe this <laughs> this uh, this image from left to right? <laughs> I can, but can we do what we did before? Because I thought that was really interesting and helpful to have you describe it. Oh, um, for sure, for sure. This with fresher eyes, and then yeah, describe it. yeah. So, so, what do you see when you look at this? Man, I see. I mean, this looks like a piece of junk. It just looks gross highly disturbing nothing there's nothing that i can take away from this where i'm where i would want to share it with anyone and say hey man you should check this out this is really cool or hey this is really interesting it just looks like oh what's like the 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 psychiatry thing the the rosarch uh yep roshock test roshock that it looks like a a nightmare of a of a roshock test Mm -hmm. um and it's it's just terrible. It's just it's horrifying scenes. It's gross. It has little to no value to anybody that is black in America, especially someone that is of the lineage of uh, of the descendants of slaves. So that's that's what I take from this whole picture without without um, describing what I'm looking at. Like exactly, that's just all the. That's everything that comes to mind when I look at this. <laughs> so if you could tell the people what I'm seeing and then I want to I want to hear you describe it, because to to put this to to sum it up, just like to tell people what it's, it's, it sounds weird talking about it. You do a great job of writing it out and putting it together. But like when you just talk about it real quickly, it sounds really sounds different. So, yeah. Well, yes, yeah, so I'll give it a shot. So, 
This is a wall-sized installation made up of four key figural groups uh, that are usually kind of read from left to right. If you walked into a gallery space, it would probably take up a significant portion of the gallery space to get it all spread out. So moving from left to right, the figural group on the left, three women, um, presumably black, coded that way through Walker's typical techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, all three of them are wearing skirts, but they're topless, and they're kind of clustered together, and they are suckling on each other's breasts. And the one, the they're sort of moving down vertically, and the one at the bottom has a baby on her knee that's just about to fall off of her knee. In the middle, there's a group of three children, uh, a little white girl with an axe held over her head, a little black girl with a stick, and a little uh, boy who is looking at them both. And then a fourth child has sort of walked away playing a tambourine, leaving a little pile of excrement behind. Mm, mm, mm. The third figural group is uh, an obese male who is propped up, well, there's a little confusion about what's going on with the legs in this character. He has a peg leg, and then he is propped up against the body of um, the white man, propped up against the body of a black child who's holding on to a plant. And there's a baby underneath him that's in danger of being impaled by a saber. And then the fourth group is uh, a black man who is raising his hands to the sky in a gesture that looks somewhat prayerful. And he appears to have just given birth to an infant who's lying on the ground. And his pants are kind of pushed down around mid-thigh. So. That. That's what I see. That is wild. Like, if I just close my eyes and listen, it's, it sounds gross. Like, does that not sound gross? Oh, when it's you, horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's horrifying. <laughs> so, but then, then you juxtapose it with the title of the work, which is The End of Uncle Tom and the Grand Allegorical Tableau of Eva in Heaven. And that's referring to Uncle Tom's cabin. Uncle Tom's cabin. That, yeah. that so what does that what does that do for you as a viewer to see these images and then have them knit together in some sort of way with this classic history changing novel? Well, it doesn't it doesn't resonate with me in in the way of like my relationship to the novel because I never read the book. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't like I I just you know, you hear the word Uncle Tom um, and that's used as a kind of like a, a slur in the, in the black community from one person to another. Um, so there's nothing there's nothing positive about I have no positive associations with Uncle Tom. I don't have a historical association or relationship to that book. And so the uh, so it's so the, so the title is negative just because it says Uncle Tom. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I know there's nothing mm -hmm. good coming from Uncle Tom, as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, 34 year, 34 year old black male that's never read the book. And then, um, yeah, so the, the title really doesn't affect me whatsoever at this point. It's, you know, in combination with the image, it's just the image itself. Mm -hmm. And when I'm looking at it and I'm and I'm saying to myself, why <laughs> like why is this why is this popular that's what I, that's i think that's the thing that that gets me i'm trying to figure out why is this popular why is this like world renowned not to with all due respect to kara i mean she she definitely does an amazing job with you know her art as far as 
the racializing of it, if that's what how, how we want to put it. So you can kind of tell who's black and who's white mm-hmm. with like the women and like their more rounder nose or whatever. And I don't know, just the whole just how, how she does it is amazing so that you kind of know what type of person you're looking at, even though it's just like black and white and mm-hmm. it's a, a silhouette. But beyond that, beyond how masterful she is with the silhouette, the the images that she's putting out there and whatever message that could be interpreted, which is just a bunch of. It's is yeah, it's gross and there's it's violent and. You know, there's there's inf- there's infant. What is it called? Infant side where you infanticide, where, you, infanticide, yeah. where you, you're killing babies. Yeah. Um there is looks like child molestation and rape like that. I'm just trying. I'm like, why? <laughs> why is this? Why is this art? Why? Is, why is this entertaining? You know, that's that's what I get. from. That's where I'm at when I look at it. I think that's probably where most people are when they look at it. OK. And they see it's larger than life. It's in your face. You're confronted with it. It's horrifying. Um. I suspect that when people see the title, there's a moment of like almost a sense of very fleeting relief where you might think, okay, that title, I know, I have no idea what's going on in the wall right now, but mm-hmm. I recognize the title of a book. So that's going to help me. Mm-hmm. This is going to help me make sense of what I'm seeing. So then for people who know the book, or even if they haven't read it, like, you know, that the main character is uncle Tom, mm-hmm. they might start looking. For that, you know, which of these characters is Uncle Tom? And it's not it's not too difficult to figure out which one could be Uncle Tom. It's most likely the older black man on the right. But then, you know, this thing that's depicted is not something that ever happened in the novel. Why why did Walker choose to present him that way? So what is the relationship between this novel and this work on the wall? And one of the things that I've tried to do is to look into that a little bit further. I went back and reread the novel. I read it very closely. I spent a lot of time with it, looked at everything I could find from Walker talking about her inspirations for the piece. And I spent a lot of time looking at the characters. Um, And one way that I found to make sense of it for myself, and that's what I share uh, in my book, is that this this is a visual attempt to describe some of the things that are important about the book that are maybe not visible but also to talk about the phenomenon of the novel over the the many, many years since it was published. It's it's had a huge cultural impact mm-hmm. since it came out in 1852. Mm-hmm. You know, it started out as a serialized novel, then was published as an actual novel, and then it's been reimagined. It's a story that's been incredibly important in the cultural imagination ever since 1852. It shows up in all these different formats. It's a play, it's a dance, it's a showtime movie it's a people keep reimagining it Mm -hmm. and people keep wrestling with it it's not an easy story to tell Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons for that is it was in its time uh galvanizing for abolitionists some people credit it with starting the civil war it had a really huge impact in generating anti-slavery sentiment and getting people on board with what abolitionists were doing and and kind of moving that cause forward Mm mm-hmm so it had a really big historical impact in that way, but it is also terribly problematic in its use of racial stereotypes and the way it depicts different characters. And that's been part of it from the beginning as well. So I think 
one of the reasons people keep re-engaging with it, artists keep re-engaging with it, is because there's a tension between it being absolutely formative mm-hmm. to a particular moment in American culture and history and being so deeply problematic. Yeah. And that is, I think, um, stepping away from Uncle Tom's Cabin briefly, uh, one of the contributions that Walker makes is that she encourages us to look at stories that might have had good intentions at their heart, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, but have these really problematic representations embedded within them. So we get the, like we get the good, we get more bad with it also. And I think one of the useful things that comes out of her work is that she encourages people to look at the visual culture around them now. Like what are people seeing in theaters now? What are they seeing in cinemas now? What are they reading now? What's on TV now? How are people being represented now? Um, Either in the stuff that we just see kind of, uncritically because we want to be entertained or the stuff that's meant to have, you know, an important message, what other kinds of things are embedded in it that we should be aware of so that we understand really what kind of story we're taking on board. So I think that's one of the other, I think potentially positive or constructive things that can come out of her work is that she really encourages people to think about stories in a different way and to be really critical consumers of images and and be careful with what, what they're looking at and what they're seeing and think about it carefully. See my, oh, no, you're good. Um, it's because it's, there's just a lot that goes on and, and a lot that comes up with this. So like, as I'm contemplating and like in, in listening to you, it's she, she does. It's like, she, she fills in gaps. I think you wrote this. Like she fills in gaps of, of history that weren't visual, you know? Um, but I, I just feel like it hits different based upon who you are. Right. So, um, let's say, you know, you're, you're white and you're from middle America, or you're just from an area where, you know, there is, there's not a lot of differences, a lot of, it's just a homogenous culture. You know, uh, you don't necessarily have to think about this. You don't have to learn about it because, you know, there's not too many people in your community that this resonates with when it comes to like slavery or just mistreatment of, of um, black folks in America, things, things of that nature. Um, But then on the other hand, like if you are uh, black and like, you're very, you're well aware of stories that maybe the general public doesn't know, but because it just doesn't apply to them, but like you're well aware of it, like like myself, like I, I know about, you know, children being killed and, and fed to alligators and, you know, our our women, you know, being raped and, and our children and even men, you know, everybody being raped and, and mistreated and, and all that. Um, so. It's almost like the art isn't for us which is always like a, a point of contention, like in the, in the black community, when, when there's someone who is, who is doing something on, on a grand scale and it's being, you know, there's, there's mass consumption of it. Um, for, for good or for bad, like we like to take ownership of whatever they're doing, especially when it's successful. Um, but it's either, it's, it's typically is, is one or the other. It's either, it's either we take ownership of it and we ride with it. Um, and, or we just totally just like deny it and, and, and reject it. And we don't want anything to do with it. Um, and I don't know if that's good or bad. 
but I know that's just how we, you know, how we react uh, in America. And so um, I'm always like I'm I'm at that conflicting stage of like, man, do I accept this or do I reject this? Um, but then I'm thinking, like, do I have to accept it? Do I have to reject it? Why do I even have to have an opinion of it? Um, but then I go back, man, why is it successful? Like, who likes this? You know, and so, you know, I reached out to a, a few of my friends and only my friends that are artists. Know about Kara Walker. And, I, you know, you said she's one of the like most well-known American artists. Unless you're an artist, most I mean, I don't want to say most, but a lot, a lot of folks, a lot of black folks don't really know about Kara Walker. Like I'm showing her art to people. I'm bringing it up. I'm talking to her like, no, nah, I never heard of her. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me think like, yo, like maybe she just does this for white people. And I just have to, I have to be cool with that. You know, I just can't, I can't feel any type of way about that, you know, but I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling, but like, that's, those are the things that, that come up like as I'm processing her art. And, and her audience and who places great value in this, because if you if you come from the trauma, like you don't necessarily want to thrust yourself into the trauma. But if you've never been if you never dealt with this type of trauma, this is like, oh, wow. You know, you just look at it like, oh, this this existed. Oh, that's terrible. Wow. Maybe I should learn about this. So I don't know. It's just it's, I think it just hits different for different people. I think you're right, certainly. And the some of the issues that you've articulated have been um, circulating around her art since it came out. Mm-hmm. She faced considerable controversy in the early part of her career in the mid-1990s and a lot of backlash from um, particularly African-American artists who felt that what she was doing was recirculating, recirculating stereotypes in a way that was... Um, it wasn't helpful. It wasn't constructive. And she was, you know, building a career and earning money from it. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty significant concern for a lot of people. And that at that time, that was characterized as happening kind of along generational lines, where yeah. an older generation of artists that were on the front lines of the civil rights movement were particularly concerned. Uh, artists who were coming out of um, a moment when, if there were representations of blackness, they were positive. And if there were representations of negative imagery, they were meant to be rehabilitated. So there, there were a lot of artists working with stereotypes, but they would, you know, very, be very specific about their intent, like giving them, empowering them, recrafting them, exposing them as stereotypes and reshaping them. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a very specific kind of art historical moment when that was happening. And Walker's part of a different generation, um, kind of a more postmodern generation of artists. Um, and she and you know a number of her colleagues wanted to work with images in a different way. Wanted to know how to be the you know to, to follow on from that generation and how to explore images in a different way and not have you know a set of rules about the right and the wrong way to represent um, race and desire and sexuality and violence and to explore that. And that that was controversial then, and it, it remains you know up until. You know, her, her work is never without controversy. Um, and yet, uh, people find it moving for a number of different reasons. I, I think one of them is that she raises questions. She asks, uh, she makes people think about difficult issues and raises questions that people have a hard time answering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of 
you know, her, her work has made it into so many different disciplines. Um, people write about it from so many angles, history, literature, performance. Um, it's a useful point of departure for a lot of people to, to ask difficult questions and open difficult subjects. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also because she engages like, her source materials and the sorts of things that she cites cross disciplines really widely. She's not focusing just on the arts. She's drawing her inspiration from from images that are out circulating in the world already. A lot of the stuff that she does, it's so shocking because she brings it together in one place Mm -hmm. and asks people to look at it as fine art. And that in itself is shocking, but the places she's drawing from, she's looking at, you know, she's looking at romance novels. She's looking at pornography. She's looking at television shows and movies. And she's looking at documents from the 19th century and slave narratives and neo-slave narratives like this and it is influenced by her own imagination, certainly, mm-hmm. but a lot of her material is drawn. It's already out there in the world mm-hmm. circulating and people are seeing it and consuming it. Maybe they don't realize that they're seeing it because it's not in this condensed, concentrated way. Mm-hmm. And by pulling it together, it becomes shocking and people have to see it in a different way. But I think the point that she wants to make is that this stuff is out there already. It's around us it's influencing us. Like we may not, we not, may not be aware of it because it's not on our radar in the same way. We're not being asked to consider it as fine art, which is, you know, a very different kind of experience, but it's out there and it's influencing the stories we tell and the movies we make and the way we talk, the way we position ourselves. So I think one of the reasons that it's been successful is that people have found it helpful that she has made that point and continues to make that point that this kind of imagery is all around us already. Mm-hmm. And there is more work to be done as a culture in identifying it for what it is and being more conscientious about producing imagery in the future that doesn't have this sort of thing embedded in it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's the man. That's that's what it all comes back to, though. Like, you know, the images are out there. They've and they've they've been used and they've been abused. So to reproduce it as fine art, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but you know, that's just, Mm -hmm. oh man, to reproduce it and, and put it out there and make it bigger and, and bolder. And, you know, it's just like, it's almost, do you, do you feel like it's a glorification of, of the past? Like when you, when you look at it, like, man, is she just glorifying that, like all the stereotypes and repurposing it for her own benefit? Some people do. And they would be the, you know, the, the ones on the side of the controversy I talked about before. There are people that think she's reusing stereotypes, possibly inventing new ones. Right. Putting them back into circulation in a way that's harmful um, and should not be supported. Mm-hmm. Other people think she is identifying imagery that is already out in the world. And asking people to confront it in a different and in a more head-on way. Asking people to think about where do they see images where race and violence and sexuality are aligned? Is it, you know, in the movie they saw last weekend? Is it in the book they read? Is it is it in pornography? Where they where is everybody in their own individual lives seeing images that tell us the ways that these categories of identity can coexist? Mm. And I think that's where the the support for her work comes from is the people that 
see the value in her. It's kind of a diagnostic project in a way. It's not, I've never seen her work as having the solution per se. Right. Um, I think when I have looked for it to have a solution, that's when I've been most frustrated. And I think when, when other viewers look for a solution in her work, that's when it's most unsatisfying. But when I think of her work as a diagnostic project, as being really committed to shaking people out of complacency and asking them where, where are you seeing images in your life? This is, this is, we're seeing now what Kara Walker has seen from her various sources and she's putting it all out there to wake everybody up. But where are we all seeing images? Where are we consuming images and what are we doing about that? How conscientious are we about, you know, the latest Hollywood film and how we break down the way they represented whiteness, the way they've represented blackness, the way gender is represented the way sexuality is aligned with these categories. See, but the thing is, who's to say that it's wrong? You know, that that what's wrong. What, like what, what we're seeing is wrong. Mm -hmm. Cause Kara's not Kara. She won't say it. Right. I don't know if she's, if the argument is that what we're seeing is wrong. I think the argument is that, um, it's important to be really critically aware of what we're seeing mm-hmm. and to know, and to know that our, our imaginative culture has been profoundly influenced by some of these stories that she's citing and some of the images that she's quoting in her work, mm-hmm. or that she's being inspired by in her work. But so I, that's, yeah, go ahead. no, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut y'all. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I, so I don't think that she's necessarily saying that things are wrong, but she's, just asking viewers to be more aware visually of, of where they're getting their images and what those images are representing. So I'll, I'll take that and let's see. So what let's, let's say, let's say that's what she wants. Like she wants to be more aware of what we're seeing it and where it's coming from. Um, that that's a good thing, but like the way that I see it is like, these things are successful and they continue to come up and it's well received because people take pleasure in those images, not just because people want to be critical. You see what I'm saying? And so like if people didn't take pleasure in seeing racialized violence, just like they took pleasure in it, you know, during slavery, after slavery, you know, they would they would hang black people and have picnics, picnic, and they would take body parts. You know, they would watch us be burned, castrate like that was pleasurable for people. And so if that was pleasurable back then. And seeing us, you know, seeing a, a white man with a peg leg stab a, a baby in the chest with a with a uh, sword and rape a child hanging from a tree grabbing for the tree trying to get away there are people that take pleasure in that and i believe that's why and that all she's doing is like she's putting out the pleasurable things of those people that are that like that stuff just like people watch porn because they take pleasure in watching that you know, BDSM type stuff like BDSM isn't bad to the person that's doing it. it. It isn't bad to the person that's consuming it. Right. So if if people are consuming her violent and 
you know, racialized violence and all that type of stuff. That's ple- it has to be. So if it's pleasurable for somebody else, I would think for you to put this out year after year after year, it has to be pleasurable to you. You know, like you nobody's forcing her to make this type of art. Mm-hmm. You know, no one is forcing her to to put these images out. You know, if if she didn't take pleasure and if it was disturbing for her, I think that's what disturbed me the most. I'm thinking like if it was disturbing for her, she wouldn't do it. But if it was somewhat pleasurable, she likes, you know, she, you know, there, if there's pleasure in pain for her, I can't say that pain is bad because to her, that's pleasure, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think that's what, that's the conclusion that I, that I jump to in my mind or that, that I come to in my mind. And then that, that just, man, it, it, it disturbs me in a different type of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't mean to keep I feel like I'm beating on the same point, but I think I've just been trying to get my thoughts in alignment to 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 let you and the listeners know, like where I'm at when I when I look at the art, because it's just like it it really it really messes with you. Yeah, potentially. It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, let me zoom in on that. The, the vignette you just described briefly, because mm-hmm. I think that there's more to say about what she's doing. OK with the image and with the novel. So you just described the, the, the character in this theme of uncle Tom silhouette mm-hmm. that if we were looking for parallels with the story would be Simon Legree, who's a horrible plantation owner, the villain of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the interesting things about the end of uncle Tom is that in the era when it was written, it wasn't appropriate to describe scenes of brutality directly mm-hmm. in very many ways. So Harriet Beecher Stowe had to kind of allude to how horrible of a person he was in all of these different ways. So without describing it directly, she tried to, tries to kind of like get at it through how other people are talking about him or like the fact that his house is really run down. Or, you know, there are, all, there are all these different ways that she tries to describe him in a roundabout way as being a really horrible, brutal person mm-hmm. without just getting directly to the point. Yeah. And then in all of the years since then, as people have remade the story over and over and over again, each person has grappled with that in a different way. How, mm. how to describe the true evil of this character. Um, and, and, and they depart wildly from the story. They may be retelling the story, but they're departing wildly from it. So, you know, um, a poet, you know, redid the story in, in verse and described him as unique in all of these really despicable ways. And, and the... There was a, a Showtime made-for-TV version of this made in the 80s, and they you know, they just took tremendous liberties with the story and invented scenes that weren't there and depicted him as this really you know despicable human being. It's interesting to see how, as people grapple with this story, they consistently find different ways to show his show the evil in his heart. And, and so what Walker's doing, in a way, is in a trajectory of that she's picking out these really hyperbolic activities that he's engaged in torturing two children at the same time uh well he can't even support his own way he's impossible he's mm-hmm. an impossible character he cannot be standing mm-hmm. because he has one leg and it's a pig leg he, he can't exist and he couldn't exist as a literary character he was implausible and all the ways people have tried to reimagine him since then he just can't exist he's this impossible conflagration of things that are that can't support themselves. So in a, in a way, that's what she's doing with her image is showing he is this impossible character that people keep struggling with trying to make him worse and worse and worse as the years pass to just like make him the embodiment of everything that's wrong and bad. 
Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I look at this, I don't see it as um, like a simplistic, let's make up some torturous scenes and make them, you know, and draw them really beautifully. I see this as her engaging with a really deep history of cultural struggle with this story that was really formative to, to the American imagination in a lot of ways. And this kind of codifies visually some of the struggles that artists of many genres have had trying to, people want to get away from the story and they want to get away from this character, but they can't let it go. And she's mm -hmm. just kind of embodying some of the ways that people have done that by creating an impossible hyperbole of evil that's, you know, that can't be supported and is doing, you know, has to be shown doing all these horrible things that people understand what the ultimate racist looks like. Mm. So I see her engaging with a really deep literary visual history around this story and her caring deeply about this story and being very familiar with the ways that many, many artists over the years have tried to wrestle with it and have come up, you know, with unsatisfying results in one way or the other. Yeah. So that's, that's maybe an alternative or a counterpoint to looking at it and seeing, um, like, why would you create these images of brutality? Well, I see her engaging in a really serious, thoughtful way with this book that's incredibly important and with the history of people who have tried to engage with it over the years since then. Yeah. It's, it, I, I think sometimes getting the, like getting to a place where you can see the work that she's doing, the work behind this requires going pretty deep into it. And the, there's one of the risks she takes is that the shock and the violence of it is so upfront that that's going to send a lot of people running away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for somebody to, to stick with it and like, it takes a while to unearth these deeper stories behind the work or to come up with these explanations of it that show like there is actually cultural value and historical value in going deep into the history of the story and her art can help us do that and realize that just, that doesn't just dissipate. Like we don't have, you know, a country deeply informed by this story for mm -hmm. so many years with all these different versions of it in circulation and then it just goes away. No, that's still out there in various ways influencing us. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. It's, yeah. It's tough work. It's tough. It's very it's tough. It's really difficult work. Yeah. And salute to you for, you know, going through it and, and looking at the background and, and piecing it together and staying so, uh, objective and like not like I, I i admire that like how you wrote it where and even while you're doing this interview like you're not trying to steer anyone in any one direction you know it's just kind of like put all of the uh all the options out there and let the reader the viewer the listener decide what they want to take, you know, and that's, and that's something that I strive to do in, in a lot of senses, you know, uh, in life with, with the podcast, just a lot of, you know, a lot of different things that I do, but sometimes something like this, like, just like I said, me being, you know, an American descendant of, of enslaved people and, and seeing this slave violence, <laughs> you know, it's just like, man, I can't be, you know, I just, I, I just can't be detached from this. Like I'm, yeah. I'm emotionally connected to this and, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to be neutral on it. You know? Can I, can I share an anecdote with you? Sure. Um, 
Kerr Walker came to L.A. several months ago in the spring to give a talk. And it was supposed to be uh, in a pretty small venue. Mm-hmm. And the organizers had to move it to a much, much bigger venue. And I think there ended up being something like 700 people mm-hmm. there that night to see her talk. Um, and as they were introducing it, they explained that as they were fielding the RSVPs for people who wanted to come, the, the tremendous outpouring of people who wanted to be there to see her talk and the number of personal stories people shared about how her work had influenced them, had impacted them, mm-hmm. had, you know, had an impact on their lives and the way they see the world were so moving that they were, you know, kind of compelled to find a bigger venue so they could accommodate more people. Mm-hmm. So 700 people there that night spilling out into the night, people, the chairs were filled and it was, it was a mixed audience. Um, you know, I was there, I was, you know, interested to see her. I was also interested to see, you know, who shows up when you have, you know, standing room only for a Kara Walker talk. And it was, it was a mixed audience. It was not majority one demographic or another. And people sat in uh, just rapt attention the whole time she spoke. And there was one point, um, there's a, a work that she's done much more recently called A Subtlety. It actually has a much longer title, but um, it was a gigantic sugar sculpture that she made in New York in 2014. Yeah, which is on the cover of the book. (laughs) Yeah, on the cover of my book. When that piece came on the screen, uh, people in the audience broke out in spontaneous applause, uh, and they just applauded that piece for a few minutes, and then you know it died down and they carried on. That was a really interesting moment for me because you know I I would like to know more about that. I wish there could be. I wish there could have been a survey as people were coming in or going out. How has her work? Like, why are you so moved by her? How has it influenced you? Why did you applaud when that piece came on screen? That piece was ephemeral. It was only up for three months. Um, and it was destroyed afterwards. So people who didn't see it then never will see it, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And I doubt that all those 700 people that were there that night made it to New York to see it. So most of these people never even saw that work in person. They just saw representations of it or heard about it. Mm-hmm. And yet it was so powerful and moving that there was spontaneous applause. And I don't have the answers to those questions. I don't know. I don't know, but yeah. it it is powerful work, and people respond to it in powerful ways um, across cultural lines. For sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about the power of the work and and just the images because they're yeah they they definitely tell a story without even without with with no words necessary, just the image alone. You know, obviously, many people have written on it. A lot of think pieces. I mean, you wrote a book, but I mean, a lot of, a lot of uh, articles and arguing back and forth. I'm sure. So yes, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. Now there was there was something I wanted to talk about, but I can't I can't remember exactly. Maybe I already looked at it, but is the is the quadroon was that like the first part of the uh, end of Uncle Tom's, or was that a different image? I think uh, you're probably thinking of the the group of three women that are um, all clustered together. Yeah, and then there's the baby. And the baby, yeah. Right, right. So there was there was something that you had wrote, and I and I wanted to uh, to get more of your idea on this. So mm-hmm. um, it said neglect. So basically, it was once again it was the three women. They were suckling each other's breast, mm-hmm. and then the baby was trying to suckle. Uh, the mother's breast, um, and then the baby was falling away. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you wrote uh, neglected 
this infant is cut off from her own history, but might allow her to imagine a future that is not defined in terms of race and gender. Uh, there is a great pain and great potential in this situation, though the loneliness of being without family is appalling. Severing ties with the past might be liberating. Now, does that does that quote apply to that correctly? Or did I did yeah. I get that correct? Was that? Tw- yeah, yeah, okay. I, I did write that in okay. the context of that piece. Yeah, for sure. So um, I wanted to ask about. Um, like what what your thought was. You know, when you're saying that um, a future. Like, how how did you come to the to the conclusion of or not conclusion, but just to the thought of, you know, a future that's defined in terms that's not defined in terms of race and gender? You know, when you when you look at that image. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that that image, I would have to get back into the the literary weeds of mm. <laughs> Uncle Tom's Cabin to explain like how I think that figural group connects to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in that, that quotation that you've excerpted, I was thinking more about the fact that Walker is trying to make an argument for looking at images in a different way mm-hmm. um, than the generation of artists before her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she's arguing through demonstration that she because of the progress that was made through the civil rights movement and the advances that were made socially, she is able to be an artist in a different way and able to work with images in a different way. And she, I think, uh, acknowledges that at the same time that she doesn't want to be confined by those same expectations. She doesn't want to only have to work with images around race and gender and desire in ways that are strictly positive or rehabilitating stereotypes or that always have a clear defined sense of intent and motive and what the lesson inside is supposed to be. Like she wants to work with images in a different way. And she wants to say things about how images influence imagination and how, you know, we may learn through academic disciplines, but our imaginations are maybe not disciplined. And we, we see images in all of these places and they inform us in ways that we can't even imagine. And she wants to make work that expresses that and prompts other people to think about that. But it's a real break from the way um, some of the artists that came before her dealt with difficult stereotypical imagery. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that was easy for her necessarily. I think it was probably a very fraught time to, to make that statement in a really strong way and have artists of an older generation come out in open protest against her and say, you know, we think what you're doing is bad and dangerous. Um, so that's, that quote is me kind of speculating about what it means to make that break visually Mm. And to take those risks and to, to feel like there might be the potential of thinking and seeing in a different way. Again, I don't think her, her work tries to propose a solution. I think she's focused on diagnosing the problem mm-hmm. and encouraging her viewers to be more aware of the problem, that these images are all out there already in different ways. Um, but I, you know, I think there's an argument to be made for you have to diagnose the problem before you can treat it, before mm. you can move forward. For so, sure. That's, I think that's kind of what I was getting at. Okay. And then also the, the part of, um, you know, severing ties with the past might be liberating. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that would be pertaining to once again, the, the baby that's falling away, Mm -hmm. uh, from her mother. Um, what, 
what do you mean by or like what what do you see or what what do you see as like as as an alternative um or what am i trying to ask like severing ties like how how do you see severing ties like how how could that be liberating like in what in what sense would you say Mm -hmm. well i think just what i was saying before like i think there must be a sense of um in, in choosing to work with images in a, in a dramatically different way than uh, perhaps Walker felt expected to going mm-hmm. through art school and coming out of a certain tradition around image making. Mm-hmm. There were, she felt some expectations around the way she was supposed to work with images or able to work with images. She's spoken openly before about, you know, teachers in art school and before they're steering her away from certain kinds of art mm-hmm. and towards others because of her African-American identity. Okay. Um, okay. So, you know, this is a big part of her of her past, dealing with the expectations that are projected onto her as an African American woman. Yeah. By her art teachers, by the viewing public, by an older generation of artists that you know contributed directly to a society where she's able to practice art in a different way. So I think that she's just you know, very aware of that and thinking about what it means to to have all these expectations projected on her because of who she is. You know, being an African-American woman making this kind of art. So, you know, which of those ties is she severing? Does she have to sever them? You know, how, how much do you have to disconnect from your past to have the possibility to create a new future for yourself that's not overdetermined by things from the past? Yeah. I think these are questions that she's raising. Yeah, no, for sure. I Now I, I, I can connect with that. I can personally connect with that. So, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, I was I was raised in a church, raised Christian, you know, my whole family, both sides, mom, dad, grandparents, everybody heavily Christian, you know, and um, and the more I studied and the more conversations that I had and the more that I allowed myself to be open to the idea that I didn't know everything and that this may not be, you know, like everything that it was taught to me ever since I was, you know, four or five years old. Um, and, you know, I, I came in, but, but, you know, when I, when I talk to those that are still in the church or talking to my family, like I'm not getting the answers that I want or that I know I need, um, because I'm just getting the same old rhetoric. And, but then it's like, man, this really isn't working, (laughs) you know? And so, um, but it's it's scary to to leave that that religion to like denounce it or whatever, just mm-hmm. or just, you know, just just to sever those ties, because, you know, you, you could potentially, you know, you're you're, you're going to lose a few friendships. I mean, people that are just hardcore, whatever religion is like, if you're not a part of the gang, then you're not a part of the gang, you know. Right. And so um, but it was one of those things where it's like in my mind, and in my heart, like I knew that this wasn't working for me and there was just too much turmoil and I, and there was so much more that I wanted from life than to be, you know, kind of stuck in this mindset and this thought pattern. And so, um, so I had to sever ties with my past and everything that was put into me and, you know, but it was, it was very liberating, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. so yeah, severing ties with the past might be, it might be liberating in some senses. 
it, it might not be. But I know for me in that situation where everybody like kind of what you saying with Kara, like, oh, you're a black woman. Like, you can't talk about this. You can't tell this story. You can't put that image out. And it's like, you know, people that's that's in my circle, like, oh, man, you was raised this way. Oh, your, your, your dad is a pastor. Like, what is he going to? It's like it's not my life and, and, and my future as whatever I do in life as a father, as a husband, as a, as a man. Like, I can't be tied to what the past has told me that what I'm what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. So y'all yeah, can definitely see where you're coming from and, and where Kara is coming from with that as well. Yeah, that's a that's a really good, a good parallel to draw, I think. And we can, we can extend it a little further and say, you know, thinking about us as a culture, as a society, mm-hmm. we want to move towards a future where we do away with racism, where we fight against it and we do away with it. And it's mm-hmm. not around us all the time. And we aren't living with this tremendous injustice and daily atrocities mm-hmm. and images play a role in that. They don't play the only role, but images have a role in that. They, reflect what we imagine what we think is possible mm-hmm. what we can imagine for our future so we can think we can apply it to that as well and think about what would it look like if we were able to to sever the past all of these images that haunt us from the past from whatever sources they're coming from if we could just sever those ties and be liberated and create a new visual present and future for ourselves based on equality and equal access to opportunity and a the right to live a life to their full potential what would that be like mm-hmm. it would be liberating yeah and I, we have to try you know, we, we, the project of severing ourselves from the past i think culturally and visually is it's a very difficult one but i think we have to try for sure beautifully put beautifully put now I want to I want to transition into the Fab Five. These are five questions that I ask everyone on the podcast. All right. Mm, okay. So question number one, actually one A and one B. So one A is what is your favorite genre of music? I'm making notes. Um, lots of things inspired by electronic dance music. Mm. I, I move pretty broadly through that genre and I don't often know the names of the subgenres or micro genres or yeah. fleeting genres that come and go, but the EDM is a pretty consistent pulse for me. For sure. So is there any artist or, or album that made you fall in love with EDM? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I could pinpoint one for you, but I'll or, think about it. Yeah. Like Was there like a, was there like a, a certain show or concert that you went to that really stuck out to you? Hmm. No, no, not in particular, but I'll, I'll try to come up with something more concrete for you. Okay. No worries. Question number two, is there a movie that has changed your outlook on life? I should have prepped for these questions ahead of time. I like to hit these spontaneously. It was the yeah, first first thing know. that comes to mind. I don't know. Hmm. No, gonna have to come back to that one too. All right. When you feel overwhelmed, how do you de-stress? Oh, that one's a little easier. I run. Yep. Yeah, that's my that's my go-to stress relief. I run. Mm. How far? <laughs> 
you know, I'm a pretty slow runner yeah. as these things go. So I, I tend to go for duration rather than distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say like 45 minutes to an hour is a good therapeutic run for me. Yeah. If I'm having a really rough time, I'll go for longer. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty slow <laughs> by the time I get back from that. <laughs> Well, uh, the main thing is not necessarily how fast you go, but as long as you're getting your cardio in, right? Exactly. Yeah, yep. for sure. So it's very, 40, it's very meditative for me. Yeah, definitely. 45 minutes to an hour. That's that's awesome. I wish I could do that. But uh, one day, one day I'll get there. <laughs> if you ran as slow as I do, you'd be able to do it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I go for like 20 minutes and I'm gassed. I'm like, all right, I got to change it up. <laughs> All right. Uh, question number four. If you woke up tomorrow and won the lottery for a hundred million dollars, how would you spend your money and your time from that day forward? Mm, that's a great question. I think I would give a lot of money to a lot of really great organizations mm-hmm. that cross the spectrum from Uh, important social justice movements to environmental enterprises, education for students. Yeah. I think health education and social, social issues Mm -hmm. would be the the areas where I try to make the biggest impact. For sure. A lot of money going to, to Getty, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Question number five, what message this is, this is heavy too. This is heavy, but, uh, what message do you want communicated at your eulogy? My eulogy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think when I try to boil down my my purpose in life, I think the best that I've come up with so far is that I would like to create communities of possibility. I'd like to be instrumental in bringing people together around possibility um, and increasing the possibility that they have access to. So. I think my eulogy would say that I did a good job of that, that I made, I made an impact somewhere. Awesome. And Rebecca, I do have a plus one. If I could add one more. Sure. If you could choose any one celebrity as your life coach, who would it be and why? It's another one of the hard ones. (laughs) (laughs) I come with the hard hitting questions. Concert or a book or a person. (laughs) Celebrity. I don't know. A lot of people say Will Smith mm-hmm. or uh, who else has come up? Denzel Washington, uh, mm-hmm. Barack Obama, Serena Williams, just just to name a few. Mm-hmm. I think of the four, I would I would ask them all for 25 percent of their time. Mm, smart. I'd patch that together into like a comprehensive but multifaceted life coaching. That's that's a very smart answer just synthesize all their, their brains together and boom. Yeah. Yeah. Get a little bit of each of them. Yeah. yeah. One big master coach. That's, that's dope. <laughs> all right. Any, uh, anything jogging your, your brain when it comes to the movies or the artists? Not yet. I'll have to, I'll have to get back to you and we can put it in the show notes. <laughs> no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Well, Rebecca, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on the show and discussing the book. I've definitely enjoyed my time with you. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you as well. For sure. It's been a a great hour and a half together. For sure. For sure. And just really quickly before we go, if if we could sum it up, and I know you're not necessarily trying to steer anyone in any direction, but if you could sum up, um, you know, the book and Kara Kara Walker's work, um, 
for those that haven't read it yet, what would you say? Well, I would say I, I tried to get it all in the title. And in particular, those first two words, consuming stories. For sure. I really think the way into her work that's been most productive for me and the message that I think I can take out of her work and that I hope people take out of my book is that as important as it is to be the person making the stories, whether it's the artist or the filmmaker or the novelist, it is incredibly important to be the person on the other side of that exchange and to be consuming those stories. Mm. It is so important for us to be aware of the stories that we are circulating, that we're telling ourselves, because at the end of the day, the images that we populate our minds with, whether it's about race or it's about history or it's about gender or sexuality, whatever we choose to consume, it's it's not only going to influence how we remember the past, but it's going to influence how we shape the future. So it's just, it's tremendously important to be conscious consumers of our stories. Definitely, definitely. And if people want to reach out to you, Rebecca, how can they reach out to you on the socials? Uh, I'm, I am terrible at social media, <laughs> but I have the tiniest presence ever on Instagram, <laughs> which maybe will be more robust now that I've talked with you. For sure. Um, but I plan to get better at it. So that's that's where I can be. I think I have a presence on Twitter still also. Okay. So they just search your name, Rebecca Peabody, yeah. and they'll find you? Okay. Yeah, they'll find me. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right, y'all. So um, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram if you have any questions at Socks and Sandals Podcast. If you haven't already done so, subscribe on iTunes. Hit that heart button on SoundCloud and repost. We appreciate all the love and support. And once again, it's the Socks and Sandals Podcast where society, culture, history, and religion collide. And we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. I'll let y'all next week. Grace and peace.